Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Callum Cintron. I use they, them pronouns, and I am calling in from the lands of the Lenape in Northwest New Jersey. I'm here representing the LGBTQ plus IA and allies inclusion team, and I'm volunteer with the National Inclusion Team. I'd like to introduce you to our speaker, Clara Fang. Clara Fang has been a climate advocate for 20 years and an equity, equity consultant for the last three years. She's currently Deputy Director of Partnerships at Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Prior to that, she was a Senior Fellow at Citizens Climate International and Student Engagement Director at Citizens Climate Lobby. Clara serves on the Board of Directors at the Association of Environmental Studies and Sciences. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in English from Smith College and a Master's in Environmental Management from Yale University. Welcome, Clara. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? So good to see you. So glad to be back at CCL and really thrilled that you're having this conference. Um, so I'm going to start my screen share so you can see my presentation. Okay, so this will take just a second. And if I can get to the presentation mode here. Well, all right, here we go. Now you're seeing, right? Okay, well, thank you, Kaylin, for that kind introduction. So I'm talking today uh, about uh, people of color in the environmental movement. For the last uh, four years, I wanna say, I have been doing my PhD at Antioch University with my dissertation on diversity and equity in the climate movement, um, a project that CCL has really helped me a lot with, for which I'm very grateful. Um, so my pronouns are she, her, I am, um, a 1.5 generation Chinese American, English is my third language. And this picture was taken during the 2019 CCL conference in DC with a couple of um, the members from my CCL chapter in Detroit. So um, I'm gonna start this, this presentation talking about where we are in terms of diversity in the climate movement and how did we get here, you know, some reasons why we are. Uh, and then talk about um, some of the uh, results of my, my research where I um, had a survey of um, over a thousand participants, uh, all climate activists uh, and interviews with um, climate professionals. So talking about the challenges for people of color in the climate movement, their strategies for uh, staying engaged and um, what um, recommendations they have for the environmental movement. So um, a little bit about me and where I am from. I grew up until I was nine year old uh, in Shanghai, China, uh, a city of 28.5 million. So uh, to give that some context, New York City is 8 million people. So Shanghai is three times more than three times as large in terms of population size. Um, so in addition to it being very big, it's uh, a economic uh, center for China and really for all of Asia. Um, it's an incredible uh, cultural, economic, and um, political, too, powerhouse uh, in that region and, and very important in the world. Uh, Shanghai is also ranked the number one uh, megacity most vulnerable to climate change in the world. Uh, and this is because it is uh, 13 sea level. Um, it is right on the uh, coast uh, of, of the Pacific Ocean, essentially. Um, and uh, it was built on a swamp. <laughs> um, so you have, 
you have 28.5 million people who are in a very vulnerable place for sea level rise, for um, uh, heat. Um, Shanghai is the same latitude as, as New Orleans. So you have summers that are very, very hot and steamy. In fact, this last summer, um, they had temperatures of um, 110 degrees this summer uh, with 100% uh, humidity. And, uh, most residents do not have air conditioning. You know, they, they just have to cope. Um, it's also a city where uh, people deal with a lot of air pollution. So when I was growing up back in uh, the, the 90s there, um, it was uh, very smoky. There was a lot of industry. Uh, there were a lot of wolves, <laughs> like people cooking the coal in their homes, creating a lot of smoke all over the city. Uh, even in, in 2020, uh, 49,000 people died due to air pollution in Shanghai. So it, it has huge environmental challenges. And people there talk about it all the time. You know, it's not an environmental issue. It's just a, a daily life issue. Um, and depending on if it's really hot that day or has air pollution, you know, if you're outside, it could, it could kill you. Um, so it's, it's really important for people there. So um, that's kind of where I come from. And um, I've been doing this work a long time, partly because after I came to the United States, I was so grateful for the clean air and also the, uh, the freedom that we have to do social activism work. Um, and, and that has brought me to CCL and a lot of really wonderful communities. Uh, yeah. So what does a um, climate leader look like, right? So if we think about, uh, you know, who are the, the really visible uh, vanguards in the climate movement, you know, so you maybe think of Greta Thunberg, uh, Al Gore, uh, James Hansen, Jane Goodall, Bill McKibben. Um, so uh, they are all white, <laughs> and except for, for Greta, they're all pretty old too. And we're very grateful for these leaders for uh, paving the path and um, creating such a vibrant movement. Um, but we also have to recognize that a lot of people of color have been left out in the conversation. So if we look to the uh, history of the environmental movement, um, we, we get an understanding of, of why uh, things are not as diverse as they could be today. So um, the US environmental movement came from the conservation movement in the 19th century, uh, the founders of these movements were wealthy white men from the East Coast. Uh, they all went to you know, the same Ivy League universities and they were beneficiaries of capitalism, institutional racism and patriarchy. And we're talking about like the early 1800s. Um, so they, they intentionally excluded membership from women, people of color and poor people from joining the environmental organizations. And they were uninterested in addressing social inequalities at the time like slavery, the oppression of women and the abuse of labor. They sort of saw these as, as urban issues and uh, nature as a place to get away from the corruption of the city. Uh, and they were interested in keeping those, those wild places uh, uh, great for, for white people, essentially. So their agenda were, were often harmful to BIPOC. They took land from Native American tribes to make room for new national parks and monuments. They criminalize people for subsistence activities, turning them into squatters and poachers. They willfully annex land from Latinos and incited violence on those that resisted. And they dispossessed land promised to newly emancipated black citizens after the Civil War. Um, so because of this history, you can imagine a lot of uh, BIPOC uh, 
communities, uh, they don't identify with the environmental movement. They uh, never joined it. And, and we're still struggling with this today. So people of color are, are underrepresented in environmental organizations, and we have some data to show this. So the, the top blue line shows uh, people of color population in the United States, um, which in 2008 was like 35%. Uh, today it's, it's 40%. Uh, and then the red, uh, people of color representation in environmental organizations. And there's been a consistent 20, per, 20 point gap in those two. In the last few years, this has um, changed for, for the good um, in a lot of these organizations. So we see that um, through from 2018-2021, the um, percentage of people of color on the full-time staff of the uh, largest 40 environmental organizations has, has increased from kind of 20% to 28%. Um, the, uh, people of color on the senior staff of these organizations has, has also increased, um, uh, but their numbers are uh, a bit lower. Uh, and if you compare this to the general population, um, it's, it still falls quite short. So uh, if they are 30% of the staff of these environmental organizations, the general population, the people of color are 40% and um, it will be 50% by 2045. We also know that people of color support climate actions more than whites. Uh, the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication did a study uh, showing that Black and Latin, Black historic, Hispanic, Latino, and Black Americans are more likely to be alarmed or concerned about global warming than whites. Um, so here you see that they, uh, both Hispanic and, and Black, groups have larger segments of the alarmed and the concerns uh, than the white group uh, and fewer doubtful and dismissive. Um, and we also asked them, um, how willing are you to join a campaign to convince elected officials to take action to reduce global warming? Um, Hispanic and uh, Black participants, that's 3%. I am already participating in a campaign like this. Uh, 13 and 12%, I definitely would do it. 24%, I probably would do it. Why does equity lead with race? Um, I mean, we know that oppression happens in many forms. Uh, you can be oppressed because of your gender, sexual sexuality, uh, age, um, socioeconomic status, um, but race is a really big one. And um, a lot of it is because so much of the uh, economic oppression has ended up in um, black and uh, indigenous and people of color uh, uh, with much less wealth than uh, white households. So in this um, chart, we see you know, uh, in 2019, really like very little has changed. The wealth of uh, black households is, is one tenth the average wealth of white households. Um, you know, and when you have less wealth, you have much less um, resources to deal with a, a climate disaster when that happens you're much less flexible in terms of being able to move elsewhere or you know, buy the insurance that you need. Um, you're more likely to live in places that are uh, vulnerable to floods, heat, uh, exposure to toxins in the environment. So all of that uh, is, is very much um, uh, affected by race in the United States. 
Um, so uh, leading with race um, can really have a, a big impact on our diversity work. Um, climate change affects everyone, but they impact not experienced equally across populations. So, you know, if we um, look at some of these uh, um, statistics, talking about the inequity, African-Americans constitute 13% of the U.S. population. They contribute 33% less than white Americans to climate change, but bear 21% more of the harms when compared to other racial groups. Black Americans in urban areas are more likely to live in places with dangerously hot temperatures and are twice as likely to die from dangerous heat compared with other groups. Black households in the U.S. experience the most economic dam damage from natural disasters, losing an average $50,000 per house household in the aftermath of disaster, while white households gain $75,000. So if we look at some of the uh, disproportionate impacts for uh, flooding, for example, um, uh, marginalized communities, they probably live in aged and crumbling infrastructure that's not well insulated against the weather. Uh, they um, experience corruption and have a lot of distrust in the government. Their homes may be behind on repairs. Homes may not have insurance. Um, there may be existing financial and health problems. And when something like a flood happens, they, they have nowhere else to go. Um, you know, and, and like this, this happened to me in my home, like it was flooded last summer. And um, I just had to live with that. And it was also in the pandemic. So there was really nowhere else to go. <laughs> um, and, you know, I ended up being very sick living with a, a basement that was flooded with sewage water. Um, they, uh, if you are um, in a, in a um, frontline community, perhaps you live in, um, in urban heat islands without tree cover. Um, there's not as much green space in your neighborhood. You probably don't have air conditioning. Um, people who uh, work outdoors are more exposed and at risk. Um, elderly, sick, and the children are also more susceptible to high heat. Um, in terms of food, they may experience lack of access to healthy food or no space to grow their own food or um, foreign insulation in their homes uh, or uh, energy um, or not have health insurance. So all of these are, are ways that climate change, that um, uh, being a marginalized, from a marginalized community can expose you to more climate impacts. So, um, uh, Inequity is harmful, not just to people of color, but really to all people. Uh, Heather McGee wrote a really wonderful book, which came out last year called The Sum of Us, Where Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And it's really about um, how racism has shaped our institutions in a way where um, everyone in our society is worse off because of it. So she tells the stories of, um, public pools in the 20th century, where having these large pools was a, a amenity that the city wanted its citizens to have. And they were a point of um, pride and, and like a wonderful resource for the community. And these pools had, had sand beaches and could have as many as 10,000 people in them. Um, but then when the civil rights movement um, uh, successfully integrated these pools, people didn't want them to be integrated. And um, they sold these pools or, or filled them up. So, um, you know, instead of letting everyone have access to a pool, now nobody did. Um, and we, we have seen this happen uh, in, in many other parts of society 
where, you know, for example, like the integration of, of public schools uh, and uh, all these people criticizing how terrible public schools are and underfunding them. So instead of having good public schools for everyone, we have bad ones for everyone. Uh, or that the fact that we don't have um, universal health insurance or um, uh, efficient public transit in our cities, um, or that our response to COVID-19 uh, was so poor. Uh, a lot of this has to do with what Heather McGee calls a, a drain pool politics, um, where uh, um, there's this, this belief that if black or brown people gain something, it is at the expense of white people. Um, and so instead of letting people, letting all people have access to public amenities, uh, we just shut them down and don't give anyone access. So the climate is, is a commons as well, and, and it's kind of like a pool. Uh, and, you know, uh, we, can, we can think about how, why we have taken so long to address climate change and why it's so difficult, to, uh, been so difficult to marshal the resources, partly because if we address climate, then everyone benefits, right? Like the climate doesn't care if you're black or brown or white. Uh, and yet we, uh, the, the people making the decisions still have this thought of, of, we're not sure if those people deserve that, you know, whether we, we should address air pollution or clean water or a livable climate. Um, so uh, I started doing this research at first sort of um, interested in looking at why there's so much, uh, so much less racial diversity in uh, climate organizations. And then really looking at the um, equity and inclusion and um, how we can be creating a climate movement that is truly inclusive, where it fosters a sense of belonging, where people can show up with their whole selves and, and stay there, you know, not just be recruited, but really thrive in, in the movement and contribute with their whole selves. Um, so uh, I started with, with some of these research questions. Um, so with my methods, I included a, a literature review where I looked at a lot of peer-reviewed articles and organizational DEI documents. I did a survey with um, 1,003 participants who all identify as climate activists. And I interviewed 17 people um, uh, identified as BIPOC in the climate movement. So um, a few biases and limitations up front. Uh, these people were all self-identified climate activists. So, you know, whatever that means to them. Uh, they also self-selected to, to respond to the survey. So perhaps those are people who are already kind of interested in this issue. Um, I didn't have a lot of participation from younger organizations, which I wish I had. Um, overall, BIPOC responded less than whites. Um, and the data gathering all happened during the pandemic. And there was some unevenness in the survey in that some people got slightly different questions as um, the research went on and uh, you know, different questions uh, became more important. So um, uh, the first question was, what organization do you belong to? So this shows you the uh, organizations that um, these climate activists were part of. Uh, CCL contributed the most 671 <laughs> out of 949. Um, almost all of the, the uh, respondents said they belong to more than one organization, um, some, you know, like maybe a committee in the church or uh, one of the other larger environmental organizations, but really like all types, uh, you know, very local to international, um, all, all over the country. 
what is your racial and um, uh, ethnic identification? So for this survey, 78% uh, of the people identified as uh, having having white heritage, and then um, the rest uh, with um, uh, one of the other ones. So 12% Asian was was the largest second category. 11% uh, was the second largest for Latinos, and then uh, African Americans, and so on. Um, so uh, a lot of people identified as having more than one one race. So um, in terms of people who have some um, non-white heritage, that was about 30%. Um, for gender, uh, in both groups, there uh, women were in the majority. What is your age? Um, there was a significant difference between the white and the POC respondents. There, uh, the white respondents had a lot more older participants and the POC tended to be younger. The uh, political persuasion was pretty much exactly the same between the two groups. Um, most of them identified as very progressive or moderately progressive. Uh, social economic status. Um, so the, the whites were identifying slightly more in the um, upper class and upper middle class categories. How long have you been involved with this organization? So um, the uh, people of color tended to be a little bit newer. Um, you can see like the 46 blue block is uh, less than one year, um, all the way up to the coral, which is uh, more than 10 years. Uh, in what capacity are you involved in this organization? So they, the choices were supporter, donor, volunteer, staff, board member, or other. Um, and, uh, you know, th this was not um, a lot of statistical difference between these two groups, actually. Um, uh, people of color uh, were, um, uh, statistically, they were more on the, uh, the boards. How many times have you contacted your elected official about climate change in the past year? So here we see that um, the white group, they were more likely to have contacted their elected officials 10 times or more in one year. And the people of color were more likely to have contacted them one to three times. How often do you talk about climate change to your family and friends? Um, so the, the white group, they were more likely to talk to them more than once a week uh, and the POC uh, once a week. How many times have you participated in the public march or demonstration? So um, uh, not much difference between these two groups for this question. A lot of them said because of the pandemic, they couldn't attend as many marches as they had before. How many times have you met with your elected officials or representatives on climate change? So very, very similar for these, these two groups. How many hours a week do you spend volunteering with a climate organization? Um, pretty similar here, yeah. Um, uh, the uh, POC uh, had more people who volunteered in the one to three hour category. <laughs> so overall, um, in terms of demographics for the people who in, were in my survey, um, they were 70% white, 59% women, 31% over 35, 45% over 55, 82% progressive, 89% middle class, 90% less than, been involved less than 10 years, 
95% volunteers or some active role. And in the minority, we have 30% POC, 38% men, 2.5% non-binary, 21% 35 to 54 in age, 17% moderate or conservative, 3% lower class, and 7% upper class. So I asked them, uh, what are you worried, most worried about when it comes to climate change? And separated those between the BIPOC and the white. So with um, uh, the BIPOC group, inaction and extreme weather were the top um, worries that they, they cited. So they were very worried that there wasn't enough uh, action around climate change um, to really reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and they were worried about extreme weather. Um, they also said they were worried about inequality of the impacts a lot, like access to clean food and water. So you can see kind of um, the order in which these concerns showed up. Um, among the white group, they were much more likely to say future generations was, was the answer that came up the most um, in terms of what they were worried about. And then um, very, uh, closely uh, also in action by government. Um, and then this was followed by displacement, refugees, inequality, food and water, and so forth. So some comments about worries. Um, this one um, uh, person of color said, I'm constantly anxious about extreme weather, weather events impacting my family and loved ones, about the effects of climate change on wildlife about effects of climate change in communities most vulnerable, about climate justice. It can be easy at times to feel overwhelmed by it all. They were asked, how does climate change impact you? Um, so among the BIPOC group, uh, more than 63% said they uh, experienced direct impacts from heat, flooding, fire, sea level rise, all of these things. Um, and then um, uh, much, lower impact, 38% uh, said uh, it impacted their behavior, that they, they um, changed uh, because of, of climate change. Uh, among the white group, the number one answer that came up was mental health. Um, people said they experienced anxiety, depression, stress um, because of climate change. Uh, and then about 43% said they uh, were directly impacted by in some way, um, and then the the other impacts that they experienced. Uh, so a couple more comments from people of color. I grew up in Bangalore, India, a city with one of the most polluted water systems. We were supposed to run out of drinking water in 2018. I also come from a long lineage of farming families. I have seen most of my aunts and uncles suffer from crop failures. Climate change also affects me in so many different ways. Another person said, it almost feels impossible to answer this. I can't think of a single aspect of my life that isn't affected by climate change. What challenges or barriers do you experience to participation in the climate movement? So for the BIPOC, uh, the uh, most frequent answers were lack of time and uh, lack of representation in, in, in that response, you know, a lot of them talked about how difficult it was to be the only person of color in a room um, uh, in these spaces in the climate movement and, and the challenges of not um, seeing people like themselves reflected in the leadership. Uh, and then this was followed by a lot of other 
uh, challenges, burnout, indifference, money, democracy, opportunity, youth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yes, many different kinds of challenges. Uh, so for the white group, um, the two most frequent answers were lack of time and indifference. Um, uh, you know, and then this was followed by physical, mental health, alignment, focus, opportunity, COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I found this very interesting because a lot of the white respondents, they, the uh, challenges or barriers they experience were often not about like, like, well, I didn't have um, enough time or I didn't feel welcomed. It was more like, like, I'm so frustrated that um, other people don't care, that our elected officials aren't doing something about this. And um, it's, it's difficult to stay in this because um, we don't see a lot of change. Um, so, so most of their complaints were, were kind of about external barriers, um, whereas for the, the BIPOC, there were, there were more internal challenges like lack of representation and burnout and uh, challenges with, with lack of opportunity and democracy and so forth. So comments about challenges. Being a BIPOC, I'm treated as more of a token. Abusive white men in power in the movement being stripped of credit for my work. 21 years ago, no one gave me the time of day. Now everyone wants me. So this is from a, a white participant. I failed to see an intersectional political analysis of the climate crisis, especially coming from older white folks in the climate movement. This lack of intersectionality uh, can be a barrier, making climate work seem elitist and not oriented in justice. This is especially the case when folks promote techno technology solutions without addressing root causes of oppression that allow the climate crisis to come about. Okay, I need to go quicker. What systemic or structural changes would make participation in the climate movement easier for you? So for BIPOC, um, they suggested more training and education, hopefully more government action, diversity and inclusion, opportunities for action, elevating communities, youth engagement, economic systems change, intersectionality, uh, and, and more categories. Uh, for the uh, white participants, they said uh, government action, diversity inclusion, training education, democracy, economic systems change, intersectionality, jobs and funding. So a lot of these were, were very similar. Um, the one uh, interesting difference that I pointed out is that the, um, the white participants um, uh, quite a few of them said uh, they they received too many calls to action, and they wish that they were more were, was more coordination between organizations, um, and and that um, you know they would get fewer emails. <laughs> Whereas the BIPOC said they they felt like they didn't have opportunities for action, um, and that they weren't they weren't being asked to engage. So comments. Um, having more full-time opportunities that pay enough to accomplish my financial goals to break generational poverty with my family and help support my grandmothers would allow me to more easily move into the climate justice space and act every day to change our trajectory. Another person said student debt cancellation, affordable free health care, affordable rent and guaranteed housing. So, so there were many, many more comments. Um, I picked the ones that uh, showed up more than once and, and were... Um, uh, stood out to me as uh, really interesting. Um, so I also have some results from the interviews that I did. Those are rather preliminary, but I'm just gonna share uh, uh, the uh, summaries of them. Um, 
So for the people I interviewed, these are, are people who are uh, working full-time in the climate movement. Um, we asked them, what barriers in general do people of color face when trying to engage with the climate movement? And the, um, the number one thing they said was lack of representation. And then this was followed by uh, lack of commitment to DEI, uh, white supremacy culture, tokenism, market-based solutions, unexamined white privilege, environmental injustice, access to education, communication barriers, age, and inadequate human resources. Um, what challenges have you faced as a person of color in the climate movement? Have you experienced macro or micro aggression? So all of them were like, yes, I experience that every day pretty much. <laughs> and some of the most common challenges that they've had, uh, you know, tokenism, and microaggression, like being complimented for their intelligence, knowledge, and engagement in the climate, being ignored, dismissed, questioned, and challenged regarding their expertise and contributions, being intentionally or unintentionally excluded, being underappreciated, not recognized or rewarded for their work, being otherized for their culture, intersectional challenges with being a woman, young from another culture or other marginalized identity, and lack of sense of belonging in white culture, but being uh, excluded and not belonging in their own and other cultures. Um, how did you overcome these challenges? What strategies helped to help you cope? So people talked about having um, wonderful mentors uh, or uh, receiving funding um, that gave them professional opportunities. Uh, the um, uh, solace of having BIPOC colleagues and being part of affinity groups. Um, participating in programs that promote BIPOC in the environmental field, finding workplaces that prioritize DEI, leaning in, having a sense of humor, focusing on the positive, trying not to take things personally, learning about DEI. Um, I'm sorry to the interpreters if I'm going too fast. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to repeat everything that I am saying. A few things is just as good. Um, and some strategies for diversity, inclusion, and buying. People had lots of ideas, and a lot of them were like, I've been saying this many, many times, if they would just listen. Um, so these include working from an equity lens. Um, so that means not just wanting diversity and, and a pretty picture, but, but making an organization equitable uh, and uh, helping, making people feel appreciated so they want to stay. Um, having accountability and, and data. Uh, and, you know, like if you make a commitment that, there's some follow through and there are ways that, that um, organizations can be held accountable. Um, training, human resources, more representation and leadership, resources for employees, programs supporting BIPOC, um, programs supporting youth, countering white supremacy culture. Um, yes, on the left side, these are all um, strategies for um, improving inclusion, belonging, equity in the workforce. And then on the on the right side here, uh, people mentioned these strategies for engaging volunteers, that they include shifting the framing, uplifting BIPOC engagement, um, co-designing strategies, mutually beneficial partnerships, and building relationships. Okay, yeah, that was a lot. Um, so conclusions, what does an anti-racist climate action look like? So just wanna show you quickly um, the, uh, uh, belonging balls. <laughs> Maybe I've seen this before. Which I really love as a representation of what belonging could look like. So, you know, in an early stage, we have uh, a bunch of white balls, white and gray balls, kind of uh, in a state of exclusion. You don't see any color balls at all. And then um, the in segregation, the colored balls 
the minority group are, are off to the side. And then with integration, they are brought into the, the fold of the majority, but they're still kind of bunched together in one corner. Uh, and then when, with inclusion, they are uh, scattered throughout the ball and, and more integrated into the mainstream, um, but they're still, uh, identifiably different. And then in the state of belonging, um, this is a state where uh, uh, everyone is recognized as being unique. And um, uh, because they're, we're all different, we're kind of all the same in a way. Um, and um, uh, we're all celebrated for our differences um, and uh, uh, different groups can, can be different um, and, and also be together. So when, when asked people about what a sense of belonging looks like in a group, they talk about these traits. Uh, it is being present, invited, welcomed, known, accepted, supported, cared for, befriended, and needed, uh, and loved. Um, and, and all of these qualities uh, are, will help people feel a sense of belonging. Okay, so um, uh, diversity, inclusion, belonging needs to happen um, at different levels. So there's personal, you know, what you do with just yourself, uh, which can include recognizing one's privileges, learning the history and implications of racism, and listening to the experiences of others. Uh, and then it can be interpersonal, which is how do you interact with other people? Like um, not committing microaggressions or providing microaffirmations, which is like the opposite, being intentional about inclusivity, focusing on relationships and well-being. Um, at the institutional level, this would look like you know, providing opportunities and access, improving representation, um, joining your institution's DEI or social justice committee, serving on the boards, uh, positions of influence, working across sectors and organizations. And then there's systemic, um, uh, being aware of intersectionality and working towards systems change across society. Um, so uh, as we um, move forward into the future where the minority becomes the majority, I think it's really important that, that um, the minority groups make their voices heard and uh, understand that, that uh, you should be the ones to um, be the, to make these policies and uh, uh, have your voices matter in, in all the processes, you know, not just for climate change, but all of the issues that could make our society better. Uh, and, um, you know, if uh, we don't speak up, nobody else is going to do that for us, but we, we have that power, we need to use it. So what does a, a climate leader look like? Um, we have had wonderful, BIPOC climate leaders uh, through, throughout the time. Um, so some of them are, are figured here. More of them are here, many of them are young and emerging and we can support them um, by uh, uplifting their work and joining their organizations and inviting them to speak. So um, I have this website, climatediversity.org where you can find a recording of this talk and also resources that I have assembled on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, as well as some of my other papers and talks. So I welcome you to check them out. And um, here's my uh, um, contact info. <laughs> if you would like to support, you can also donate through Venmo and PayPal. Um, yeah, and really thank you for listening to me today and 
doing the work that you're doing in the climate movement. Also, thanks to my advisors, research assistants, and organizations. Thank you for that, Clara. Um, we're gonna hop over the Q&A. If you do have questions, you can uh, put them in the question and answer box at the bottom of your screen. Um, to start, Ashraf asks, Clara, what is the most significant accomplishment you made in increasing awareness and diversity in your climate work? The biggest accomplishment I've made? <laughs> um, well, um, doing this research, uh, I also think a lot of my work with CCL I'm really proud of. You know, when I joined CCL in 2017, the uh, number of, of the percentage of, of young people under 25 in the organization was less than 1%. You know, I, I went to the 2017 conference and there were like five people under 25. Uh, and by the time I left, the percentage of people under 25 was like 25%. And our conference had 600 young people, and and then among the young people, we have huge diversity. You know, like like 50% people of color, um, and also more diversity in terms of political affiliation. Um, so I'm very proud of that work that I did with CCL. Awesome, thank you. The next question is the issue of polluted water systems in India similarly exist in Jackson, Mississippi water system issue right now. Uh, in large, it affects people of color. How can we use this to influence people of color, how real the issues of climate change, I'm assuming uh, are, but so. You mean, you mean the, the disasters that have occurred? Yes, um, the water, the person is specifically asking, um, about how you talked about the polluted waters in India, something like that is happening with Jackson, Mississippi right now. Um, and it of course affects people of color. So how can we use this to influence people of color about how real issues of climate change are? Wow. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to really influence them on that since they're the ones impacted. They know this is happening and this is because of climate change. Uh, they are more aware of that than this, um, uh, I, I think that, you know, the uh, issue is kind of like, like bridging the influence, right? So um, just to, to tell you about what happened in my community, you know, we, we had huge flooding and uh, our basements were flooded and people lost a lot of money and property because of what happened. And then the, the government basically turned a blind eye. You know, there was there was no assistance or funding to the people who were impacted by this. I mean, they were sort of like, we, we will send out crews to help you clean your basements. If, um, uh, you can't do that yourselves. <laughs> but it was like, you know, the whole city was flooded, so they couldn't get to everybody's basements. And um, uh, people can't wait like two weeks. Uh, and then um, we ended up mostly having to pay for things ourselves. And even though uh, the governor got us FEMA funding, you know, people got $3,000 when they had lost $50,000 in the flood, or people got nothing, or people had to appeal three times in order to get $3,000. So it made it very difficult for them. And I just, um, you know, think that perhaps the question we should be asking is, 
how how are the people in power paying attention to this issue and and not asking the people of color to be solving their own issues all the time? Thank you for that answer. Um, the next question is, how do you see inclusion of people with various disabilities? Are efforts made to include people with neurological and immune disabilities that are so often triggered and made worse by pollutants? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's that's similar to racism, you know, and, and when we look at the belonging balls, um, uh, I think the, the um, you know, the uh, non-inclusive way is to be like, like they should figure out how to be in this space, you know, and, and they're welcome to be here uh, as long as they make it. So, so it's this attitude of like, like, yeah, we're very welcoming as long as you come to us, but really like, how can we think about um, going to where people folks are and um, taking into account their, their individual needs and that may mean that uh, the groups may have to do something a little differently and be inconvenienced, but um, that's how we get to the people who who can't always be the ones making the, the effort to um, come to the main group. Thanks for that, Clara. Um, another question from Drew is, I'm getting burnt out on this work as I'm starting to realize the harm that the IRA will continue to inflict on BIPOC frontline communities. As a second generation Latinx LGBTQ individual with white privilege, how can I express my frustrations to my 99% white CCL chapter? They just don't get it. Oh, that's a good question. And um, I want to start by saying I, I sympathize with that. You know, it just feels like we always give our all and then we get these these um, incremental steps forward in return. Um, I um, respond to that by myself, by thinking about that everything that we do matters, you know, and even if it's a very small step, we're making a very small contribution. Uh, that's that's better than not doing it. <laughs> fishermen throwing starfish into the sea. And it's like, oh, there's thousands of starfish and we're not going to save them all. But it's like, I saved that one in a matter to that starfish. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I think being being in community is so important. So if your um, CCL chapter is 99% white, you know, finding one of the, the affinity groups um, um, for people with similar backgrounds uh, or, or finding like a leader who, um, you trust and, and talking about that issue. Thanks for that great answer. Um, let's see, we have about 15 minutes more for questions. Uh, but Gad asked, is environmental racism present in the DC region? And if so, how can we mitigate it? Is it present in the DC region? <laughs> Oh, everywhere, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, I live in the DC region, and you know some of the things I see here are like the uh, a wealthy white population live in these um, areas with a lot of green space and uh, nice sidewalks and, and clean air, and and the poor people live in in the neighborhoods with um, not so many trees and and where they have 
worse air. You know, and in the DC region, we have um, quite a housing crisis where the cost of living, especially with housing, is really, really high. So you get this um, phenomenon where um, people of color are and, and poorer people are being pushed out farther from the metropolis. And then they have to spend more money and, and drive farther to work in the city. Um, and we have a lot of issues with that here, even though Maryland and DC are, are very progressive states. Uh, a question from Chris. I've always seen the tension between climate solutions and EJ solutions with persons on both sides of the tension tempted to say, help me first and then I will help you. Then I can feel insensitive because I am so intensely feeling the urgency for cutting carbon for everyone and for future generations. What is the best way forward on, on this beyond the obvious value of compassion and following the golden rule? Wow, um, thank you for these, these vulnerable questions. And I do not know that I, I have uh, the best answers to these. I think the community has so much wisdom. Um, especially the people who have been working on the front lines all their lives. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's sad that we think of it as, as a condition of some sort. And, you know, really it should be like, if, if I help you, it helps me too. Um, and we, we may just need to remind each other more of that. Um, uh, yeah, and um, I mean, Climate justice is, is the climate work um, and, and climate change is a, a justice problem. Um, so we really should be on the same page. Linda asks, do you feel you've made a contribution to the Yale program on climate conversations regarding its own inclusion policies and practices? Oh, <laughs> I just started. <laughs> Um, but I'm the second person of color to join their staff um, on a staff of 15. So I guess that's that's increasing their their diversity. Um, and you know, I think um, for the most part, like they're they're really looking to work beyond the traditional green groups um, and uh, helping providing more resources to, BIPOC-led organizations, environmental justice organizations, social justice organizations, um, uh, you know, and, and enabling them to use the resources and the research that, that Yale provides um, um, for their own strategic climate communications. So I'm very excited about that work. Uh, thanks for that answer. A question from William. Do you think that CCL should periodically ask each chapter how they are progressing in their strategies for increasing diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity? Yes, I believe we've been doing that with all the chapters. Um, and that, that's something we talk about a lot um, among the group leaders and among the regional coordinators. I know that that's something CCL has been thinking about for a long time um, in the um, Karina, Patricia, and the diversity and inclusion leaders at CCL have provided so many resources, um, Zoom trainings, written documents, a ton. So definitely take advantage of those and, and know that's something um, the organization wants to help you with. Uh, 
um, Ashraf asks, what type of research did you use for the BIPOC individuals? What type of research did I use? Yes. Uh, survey. <laughs> um, I, I hope I'm getting this, this question right, but um, uh, there was a survey where um, um, people, uh, they start out like identifying you know, what race they belong to. And then I was able to segment the answers based on that. And then there was the interview because I wanted to get more at the, um, the complexity of the issue and you can't really do that in a survey. So I had conversations with, with all these um, professionals uh, ranging from 32 minutes to like an hour and a half. Um, and uh, I, I'm writing that report up right now. So maybe sometime next year, you can come to a, a sequel of this presentation where I will talk more about um, what they shared in the interviews. Awesome. And our last question in the Q&A is from Allison asking, does the Yale program do research on what specific climate policies different demographics support? If so, what are some of those policies? Yeah. Um, yeah, they do do some research like that. So um, to give you an overview, the, uh, the flagship research that they've been doing is uh, uh, climate change in the American mind. So for the last, uh, I want to say 10 years, they have been doing this survey twice a year on what Americans think about climate change um, and putting them into the seg six segments of uh, you know, alarm, concern, cautious, disengage, et cetera. Um, and then in addition to that, they have surveys on, on like the policy question. And so they have found that um, uh, Americans overwhelmingly support uh, clean energy policy. Um, they support um, um, uh, supporting environmental justice, um, uh, carbon pricing. Uh, recently, we had a survey uh, that came out this year on, on climate justice, and people were asked questions like, "Like, um, do you support giving funding directly to marginalized communities, and do you support like the new EJ policies?" And uh, there were very positive results showing people support those conservatives as well as progressives and people of all races. And we just got another question. Uh, Susie says, some of the worst pollution is inflicted on reservations here in Arizona from mining, water toxicity, other. How are native people included in CCL work? Um, I would say CCL has not been very focused on that. It's, um, you know, for so long, we've really focused on a, a carbon pricing policy. Um, I think, um, you know, there are, we really support organizations throughout the climate movement to do these kinds of work uh, for uh, indigenous communities and for like African-American communities that are afflicted. Um, but our organization can't do it all. And, I, and probably the best thing that we can do is um, to partner with those organizations that are already doing that work um, and, and support them, like support them with our research, support them with uh, our volunteers and, um, you know, uh, in speaking out in favor of the policies. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's something that 
CCL can lean into more. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.